Our sermon text today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 13 through 17. The Bible says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. John, with me, let us pray. Gracious Lord, be with us today as we try to understand the significance of Jesus' baptism. And I pray that in understanding it, we would understand what happens when we are baptized. Help us to understand how it equips us for mission this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May please be seated. In our last sermon, we learned of John the Baptist, who was called by God to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. In the process, we noted how John's dress reminded us of the prophet Elijah, and how John's ministry was patterned after Elijah's by the way he called the nation to repentance and back out to the wilderness where the nation first began. In doing so, we saw that John was calling Israel to again become the priestly people of God, lest the nation experience God's wrath for having departed from his covenant and their calling. Above all, last week I stressed the significance of John's baptism by talking about what it meant for John to perform baptisms in the wilderness. Since today we're going to look at Jesus' baptism, I want to begin by reviewing what I said last week about John's baptism, and then I want to expand my comments about baptism a bit to help us better understand the significance of Jesus' baptism, which I will argue is of a slightly different nature than the rest of the baptisms John performed on the populace at large. Now, I'll explain that in a minute. But first, let's say a bit more about baptism in general before we look more specifically at Jesus' baptism, which, again, I will contrast with the rest. First, I remind you that I argued last week, as as well as in a sermon not long ago from 2 Chronicles, That baptism is not something that begins in the New Testament. Baptism in the triune name begins in in the New Testament. But baptism is not something that begins in the New Testament. Contrary to the assumptions of most, baptisms were performed all throughout 
the Old Testament. In fact, I will argue that a failure to realize this is what in large part accounts for much of the confusion and division around the subject today between those who baptize by sprinkling and those who, who, who baptize by immersion and between those who baptize babies and those who do not. Naturally, if you overlook 77% of the Bible that makes up the Old Testament from your discussion of these issues, it's bound to lead to confusion. But if you realize that the Old Testament is filled with baptisms of every sort, suddenly all the baptisms we read about in the New Testament take on a different meaning altogether. For example, as I've mentioned in the past, In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul explicitly calls Israel's crossing of the Red Sea a baptism. Now, Peter likens the flood to a baptism, but Paul calls the Red Sea crossing a baptism. Now, in that case, it's a baptism under Moses, but a baptism nonetheless. In Hebrews 9, chapter 9, verse 10, the author of Hebrews calls all the Old Testament purifications Baptisms. Your Bible probably says washings, but it's the word, it's the Greek word for baptism there. In Hebrews 9.10, the author of Hebrews calls all the Old Testament purifications baptisms. And it goes on in the rest of the chapter to describe the very sprinklings we read about in the Old Testament, such as they're set forth in Leviticus and elsewhere. And notice also today, this morning we read from John 1. Where priests and Levites were sent to inquire of John about why he was baptizing people. The thing to notice about their inquiry is that it has nothing to do with the rite of baptism as to suggest that John is performing some sort of new ordinance never seen or heard of before. They don't come and say, what is this new rite you've initiated? That's not at all what they say. Rather, they simply want to know why John is performing baptisms. And they ask him if he's the Christ or Elijah or the prophet spoken of by Moses. In each case, he says he's none of the above. Then they pointed to ask him, said, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? The implication is that the Old Testament must have foretold Someone associated with the new covenant will someday come to baptize. Are you, are you Christ? Are you Elijah? Are the prophet? No, then why are you baptizing? Somehow the Old Testament must have foretold someone associated with the coming of the New Testament will perform baptisms. If we look at the Old Testament, and don't assume as we're often told today that the word baptism means to immerse, we'll quickly discover several Old Testament passages speak of God sprinkling his people to make them clean when he established his covenant with them, which will correspond with the arrival of his kingdom. To cite one example, speaking on behalf of God and the coming of the new covenant and his kingdom, the prophet Ezekiel proclaims, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Notice the the connection between sprinkling and the spirit. 
I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. The prophet, uh, excuse me, the author of Hebrews cites this passage in reference to the coming of the new covenant. So we know what it's about. All right. Here's my point. I will contend that the priests and Levites who came to John to inquire of why he was baptizing had passages like this one from Ezekiel in mind when they came to John with their questions. Okay, Again, they don't want to know what John is doing. Presumably they already understand that. Rather, they want to know why John is baptizing if... He is neither the Christ, uh, 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 apparently a literal personification of Elijah, or the prophet likened to Moses, prophesied of in Deuteronomy 18. For some reason, which they obviously must have derived from the Old Testament, the priests and Levites associate the coming of the Messiah and God's kingdom with the administration of baptisms. Okay? When, when, the new, when God establishes new covenant, he's going to baptize people. He's going he's to make them clean. He's going to give them his spirit. Okay? Again, there's no indication that baptism is some sort of new rite, which John, you know, just presumably invented without any known authorization. And everyone just instinctively knows they have to submit to it. Rather, there's simply an inquiry as to why John is baptizing people, especially out in the wilderness, rather than at the temple. Meanwhile, calling on people to repent because he declares the kingdom of heaven is at hand and adds there's one coming after him who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. When we come to our text today, at the end of Matthew 3... We are introduced to the one whom the Spirit comes upon at his baptism so that he will later be able to baptize others with that same Spirit as the very first work he does after his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Now, with all that we've just said in mind, let's take a look at our text, which we can actually make fairly quick work of now that we have the necessary background to understand it. Okay? To explain. It's imperative we keep in mind that John the Baptist was of the tribe of Levi and of the house of Aaron. We know that because we first learn of John when an angel comes to his father Zacharias to announce John's birth while Zacharias is offering incense inside the holy place of the temple. As such, being a part of the priestly tribe and family... John was uniquely qualified to perform baptisms on others 
Because that was part of a priest's responsibility. Again, go read Leviticus 11 to 15. All those things make you unclean. Priests had a responsibility to baptize. That's part of their job. Okay? Keeping that in mind, keep in mind what I said last week about how the Old Testament's filled with baptisms or purifications of people and things. Anytime someone became ceremonially unclean, undergoing baptisms would have been a routine occurrence. Considering all the ways someone could come, un, uh, could become ceremonially unclean in the Old Testament, the laws of Leviticus set forth all sorts of instructions about how people and things were to be baptized or purified in order to cleanse them of impurities. Again, the significant thing to remember is that most of these baptisms were self-administered. Only the baptism of priests at their ordination and of lepers to reinstate them into the covenant community required a baptism to be performed by another. As I argued last week, that's one reason why John's baptism was causing such a commotion. He was calling upon people to confess their sins, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance, and be baptized by another, specifically himself. And notice the connection with uncleanness. To be exact, Matthew says John was performing a baptism with water unto repentance. Mark adds John was performing a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Okay? Being baptized by another. Being called upon to repent implies the people are unclean. Okay? That's why they need to be baptized. All right. It's into this context. Jesus comes to be baptized by John. And it is this context that explains John's initial reluctance to baptize Jesus. As we saw before, John's association with the prophet Elijah clearly indicated the dire spiritual condition of the people and of their need for repentance. As John notes elsewhere, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And therefore, John knows Jesus doesn't need repentance like all the rest. Rather, on the contrary, John says he needs to be baptized by Jesus. What John doesn't understand fully yet is that while Jesus doesn't need John's baptism unto repentance, John needs Jesus' baptism by the Spirit, which could only come about in one way. Jesus must first be baptized by the Spirit to receive the Spirit, and then he can bestow it on others who come after him who receive Christian baptism to explain against John's hesitation to baptize Jesus in the same manner as all the rest of everyone else who uh, uh, who came to him who were presumably ceremonially unclean Jesus tells John 
permit it to be so now, for thus it is filling for us, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Upon hearing those words, John acquiesces to Jesus' request to be baptized. John doesn't want to baptize Jesus because he knows he's the he's, he's unblemished. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Jesus says, permit it to be so now to fulfill all righteousness. And whatever that means, convince John, oh, okay, I'll, I'll baptize you then. So the question is, what was it in Jesus' words that changed John's mind? Standard answer. As Jesus submits to John's baptism to identify with the people he has come to save. After all, Matthew's already told us Joseph was to give him the name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. So it's not unreasonable to assume this might be part of the reason for Jesus' baptism. To save his people by fully identifying with their sins. There may be some truth to that. But. Jesus says the reason he needs to be baptized is to fulfill all righteousness. And in Matthew's gospel, the verb fulfill usually has to do with the fulfillment of prophecy. And we've already seen there's a connection between the coming of the new covenant and baptisms, right? Okay. Uh, and, and, and this, this, the, the think about in Matthew's gospel how the verb fulfill usually has to do with fulfillment of prophecy. We've seen this several times already when Matthew records such and such happened, uh, to fulfill that which was spoken by the prophet so and so. In those instances, when Jesus was a baby, he fulfilled the events surrounding his birth unconsciously. But now Jesus wants to conform to the will of his father consciously and obediently to fulfill prophecy. Jesus wants to do this because he knows that in submitting to baptism, he will become the spirit-filled instrument for establishing God's righteousness. Let me say that again. Jesus knows that in submitting to baptism, he will become the spirit-filled instrument For establishing God's righteousness. What am I talking about? Just to put it plainly. I believe Jesus' baptism was a priestly ordination. Read all about it in Leviticus 8 through 10. I believe Jesus' baptism was a priestly ordination. This way it's different from, from... the, the uncleanness that the others experience. I say this for several reasons. The first is Luke tells us Jesus' baptism occurs when he's about 30 years of age, which was the age in which a priest was washed or baptized to begin his ministry. The second is when Jesus later cleanses the temple near the end of his ministry, The chief priests and scribes inquire as to by what authority he did such a thing. Because only a priest had the authority to cleanse the temple and to teach in it. After Jesus cleanses the temple, they they ask, tell us, by what authority are are you doing these things? 
Or he, who is he who gave you this authority? Only priests can cleanse the temple. By what authority are you doing this? What does Jesus say in response? In response, he refers to his baptism by John. But he answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? You want to know by what authority I do this? Let me ask you about John's baptism. In other words, Jesus is saying it was John. He's implying John was the one who conferred priestly authority upon him when he baptized him in the Jordan. Now, when we understand all this, suddenly the things that occur in response to Jesus' baptism start to make sense and tie everything we've said thus far about the Old Testament origin of baptism together. Okay? To explain. Notice what happens after Jesus fulfills all righteousness. John has ordained him as a priest. Okay? Upon the occasion of Jesus' baptism, Matthew writes, The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Okay? whole lot happens here. Regarding the significance of the heavens opening. One thing we're going to see throughout Matthew's gospel is that heaven and earth have been estranged since the fall of Adam in the garden. But Jesus, by his ministry, is going to become the agent for joining heaven and earth as one thus replacing the temple in anticipation of when we read at the end of Revelation, a new Jerusalem and a new heaven that comes down to a new earth so that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is going to be the one who brings that about. Jesus is going to be the Jacob's ladder, right? He's going to be the the, the embodiment of the temple, the place where heaven and earth intersect. Already we see the beginning of this happening when the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven in the form of a dove and rests on Jesus. Why a dove? Well, the dove reminds us of the initial act of creation when the Spirit first hovered over the primordial abyss. And it reminds us of when Noah sends out a dove over the waters of the flood and brings back the olive branch signaling new life on earth. In both instances, the dove's appearance signals a new creation. Okay? We have a new creation in Jesus' coming. In passing, we should also note that the dove was a a sacrificial animal for the poor, thus hinting once again to the sacrificial nature of Jesus' death, which will be the means by which God accomplishes his new creation. Lastly, The voice of the Father from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, confirms our interpretation by combining three relevant Old Testament texts that testify to Jesus' priestly ordination by identifying him as God's chosen Messiah. To explain... The Father's words, first of all, allude to Psalm 2 to announce Jesus is the royal son of David who will be installed on Zion. 
So we know from God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord promised to be a father to David's son so that the son of David could be called the son of God. When the father declares Jesus to be his son, he therefore calls to mind Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. We're going to see when we come to the end of Matthew's gospel. It is upon that authority Jesus in turn commands the disciples to baptize the nations, which he rightly proclaims as his inheritance for having fulfilled the will of the Father by his death and resurrection. To add to this, let me add, God doesn't merely refer, refer to Jesus as his son, but more specifically to his beloved son. And we might miss out on that, but the reference there is to Isaac, one beloved son we read about in the Old Testament, who was nearly sacrificed by his father Abraham at God's command. By specifically referring to Jesus, not merely as a son, but his beloved son, we have yet one more indication about how Jesus will accomplish this mission and win the nations as his inheritance by his sacrificial death. And if all this isn't enough, the son in whom the father is well pleased comes from uh, from Isaiah 42, which also identifies Jesus as the servant of the Lord, whose suffering will bring redemption to his people through the sacrificial work of his priestly ministry. To this point, Jesus' sonship has been implied by his conception by the Holy Spirit. By his name, Emmanuel, God with us, and the words, out of Egypt, I called my son. But now in Jesus' baptism, we have an unambiguous pronouncement from heaven regarding Jesus' identity. In summary, in all these ways and more, there's just layer upon layer, but in all these ways and more, which I sadly don't have time to expand on today, we learn that Jesus' baptism was a priestly ordination performed according to the law by another of the house of Aaron, specifically to equip him for mission as a priest, not of the house of Aaron, but as a priest king after the order of Melchizedek. That, I believe, is what Jesus' baptism is all about and why it separates his baptism from the other baptisms John was performing. Okay. The time remaining... I want us to ask now, what does all this we just heard have to do with us and our baptisms? In response to that question, I'll argue that because we are Christ's body, we all share in Christ's baptisms, which is now the model for our baptism. 
to explain. The Bible makes it clear that we are saved by grace through faith and not any work that we have done. But it also makes clear that when we trust in Jesus for our salvation, he incorporates us into his body, the church. The means by which he does so is baptism, which is the rite of initiation into his body. Since we cannot look on the heart of anyone, either adult or child, we need to know who to count as and treat as Christians. The answer of the Bible is those who have been baptized and thus joined to Christ's body, the church. To put it differently, baptism is like a wedding ceremony. While a couple may be in love, they are not husband and wife until that minister pronounces them so. In the same way, baptism is the rite that seals the covenant between God and his children. As to what's going to come after, we can't be certain any more than, than, than what's going to come after when a man and a woman get married. But either way, the ceremony establishes a relationship which must be nourished to continue. What I'm saying is, believe it or not, it's similar to Jesus' baptism. Jesus is God's promised Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. In the Bible, to be anointed, typically in the Old Testament, was just to have oil poured upon you, representing the descent of the Holy Spirit, to equip, in particular, kings and priests to office. So according to the law, Jesus, therefore, doesn't begin his ministry until he is anointed at his baptism. Before this, he's like Messiah elect, right? Like the president elect. But when he's baptized, that's when he, he's anointed. That's when Jesus officially becomes the Christ or the anointed one. In other words, while Jesus was filled with the spirit from his conception, the spirit doesn't come down upon him for office, to equip him for office until the moment he's baptized. It's only when he's baptized that the heavens open and the Spirit descends upon him and he is announced to be God's son. What I will argue is we don't see it, we don't perceive it, but I think the same thing happens to us at our baptism. When we are baptized, we don't see the heaven open and the Spirit descend upon us. But the Bible tells us by our baptism, we are incorporated by the Spirit into the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. By our baptism, we are therefore joined to the earthly people that share in the heavenly life, who like Christ are thereby made instruments of righteousness to bring the life of heaven to earth. Moreover, when we are baptized, we don't see a dove landing on us in the form uh, to form us into new creations. But again, the Bible tells us it's nevertheless true. Paul says, it. therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Paul can say this because in baptism, we are given a new name or incorporated into a new community. And we're given a new mission towards the outside world. Like Jesus, John tells us in Revelation that, notice the connection, Jesus 
loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. We are kings and priests to God because when we are baptized, we too become sons of God. And though we don't hear the Father's voice We don't hear the Father voice the words he did at Jesus' baptism. Scripture tells us, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and you are Christ, and then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. As we are baptized, as we display the faith of Abraham, we become the children of Abraham and the children of God. We become heirs of the land and heirs of the world a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. Therefore, like Christ, we are baptized to become instruments of righteousness to fulfill all righteousness. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for putting your name upon us. Thank you, Lord, that by faith we can know that your Spirit uh, lives within us and, and equips us. And your word tells us we are now heirs. We are uh, sons of God. We are priests and kings. And for that, we're grateful. Help us now to understand what that means in terms of responsibility that we might be instruments of righteousness. Grant us this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's continue to worship the Lord by bringing forth his tithes and our offerings. <clears throat>